Can supply chains be more sustainable without losing performance, efficiency, and resilience? It's possible with GEP. With strategy-managed services and AI-powered software, GEP helps hundreds of market-leading companies build sustainable supply chains that are cleaner, greener, and highly effective. Supply chains that are good for the planet and good for your business. GEP. Software. Strategy. Managed services. GEP.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The conviction of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin for murder last month came as something of a surprise. But the evidence against him had been damning. When Mr. Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck at the corner of 38th and Chicago on a warm, cloudy night in Minneapolis a year ago today, there was little unusual about the scene. Not for Mr. Floyd, who had been arrested before. Not for Mr. Chauvin, who had been disciplined twice for misconduct and had 17 complaints against him. And not for America, where black people are twice as likely as whites to be killed by the police and where those killings have routinely led to widespread protests. Eric Garner in New York in July 2014 then Michael Brown in Missouri in August, and 12-year-old Tamir Rice in November, Walter Scott, Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, Stefan Clark, Breonna Taylor, shot eight times in her home last March. Those are just the cases that made news and sparked protests. Police kill, on average, three Americans every single day. Yet they're rarely prosecuted, even for killings that seem unjustified. That is down to long-standing legal indemnities and the political heft of police unions that say officers who are themselves in the line of fire must be protected. But those protections are often hard to justify. The day after Mr. Floyd's death, four of the officers involved were fired and the first organized demonstrations took place in Minneapolis. By the next day, they had spread to other cities, Los Angeles, Memphis, Portland. By the end of the month, protests had happened in more than 75 cities. And all these people out here that's been on the front lines with me every day that this started, they ain't leaving either. This ain't gonna stop. My kids ain't gonna stop it. Nobody's gonna stop this. Until it's achieved, we'll keep going. Authorities imposed curfews. More than 4,000 protesters had been arrested. And the movement went international. Australia, France, Spain, Germany, here in Britain. In Washington, a different call for change was taking shape. On June 8th, the day before George Floyd's funeral, a bill first appeared in the House of Representatives. It's a pretty exciting time. This is a transformational piece of legislation. This is an important day. It pushed for a broad package of reforms that activists had spent years calling for. A registry of officers with histories of abuse, mandatory use of body and dashboard cameras, 
a reduction in the relentless militarization of police forces, and prohibition of the kind of no-knock warrant that led to Breonna Taylor's death or the chokeholds that led to Eric Garner's. Nine days later, the bill passed in the House, with voting mostly along party lines. But there, it stopped. It had no chance of passing the Republican-held Senate. When it was reintroduced this year, it had a new name, the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, and a renewed chance at becoming law. President Joe Biden pushed for its passage before today. I know Republicans have their own ideas and are engaged in a very productive discussions with Democrats in the Senate. We need to work together to find a consensus. But let's get it done next month, by the first anniversary of George Floyd's death. That hasn't happened. But given the scope of the reforms that are on the table, given the most widespread civil rights protests America has ever known, given the conviction of Derek Chauvin, it seems clear the George Floyd case is far more than just another entry in a long list of lives lost at the hands of police. I think it happened at a time that the nation was able to focus on one thing at a time. And the issue of racial violence was brought front and center. Lee Merritt is one of the attorneys who represents George Floyd's family. He also represents the family of Ahmaud Arbery, gunned down by civilians in Georgia. He gave testimony in the Senate last year about the legislation that now bears Mr. Floyd's name. First, the pandemic was having a disproportionate toll on the African-American community at the same time we were facing historic woes like police violence. And so with Ahmaud Arbery being killed in February and the video coming out just before George Floyd was killed and, and the nation really upset about that, uh, similarly, the nation was grappling with a murder that they were really just learning about, the murder of Breonna Taylor. And of course, in between that, many, many people died. And so this incident, I believe, stood out because of the duration, a nine-minute video. You steep that into the time in which it happened, the pandemic and everyone's at home and quarantining and seeing repeated acts of violence apparently directed at the Black community. So I think it was a product of what some might call a perfect storm. And is there enough in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act to begin to make change, do you think? And is there the political will to carry it through? I don't see the political will because it has been a year since we've, we've been discussing uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And we are still split as if this is a partisan issue, as if the safety of citizens and their rights to enjoy the same protections despite their skin color, despite the region that they live in, we've been treating it like it's somehow a, a partisan issue. And so when I spoke before the United States Senate in June, and when I spoke with the Trump White House at the same time, I was confronted with police union captains and lobbies that challenged fundamental aspects of the, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, like Section 242. Section 242 would expand the federal authority uh, to allow the U.S. DOJ and U.S. attorneys to prosecute police officers for behavior that is not only intentional as it currently is, but includes reckless behavior that results in death and wrongful incarceration, et cetera. Police officer unions have been completely against that because they want to continue to enjoy the ability 
to make what they believe to be honest mistakes, to shoot people in their backs as they run away, because they believe that police officers need that kind of protection in order to fight what they believe, again, to be a very dangerous community. Say all that to say, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act has been chopped up, chewed around and spit out, and it in and of itself, doesn't even address the huge historic issues, cultural issues that we need to address in order to resolve militarized policing in America. It's just a first step. And even that first step is a reluctant, timid step. There's still so much that that needs to be done. But as you see that resistance, how do you maintain optimism? The the, the job ahead, as you see it, is enormous. And even these sort of tentative steps, as you say, are, are meeting with great resistance. Well, what we have is, I believe, a national reckoning. And a lot of people thought that the national reckoning took place last year. I believe it was an introduction to the reckoning where people said, you know what? People like George Floyd, who's historically their lives didn't matter because they had a criminal background and because of the color of his skin. Actually, we're going to start treating these people as if they are entitled to the same protections under the law as all other citizens. And so George Floyd becomes a big deal. Breonna Taylor becomes a big deal. Now in the news today, Ronald Green becomes a big deal. And unfortunately, the list goes on. Tatiana Jefferson, Botham Je, Jonathan Price, Anthony Woods. The names will continue to pile up and communities will continue to respond, demanding justice for those communities. And there will either be unrest or people will finally wake up and, and address the policies that allow this culture to be perpetuated. So I believe we're still in the midst of a racial reckoning in this country. Uh, and I am optimistic that the reason things will change and the laws will change and the policies will change is because the activist community in the United States are no longer going to simply accept that that's the way things are and they will resist. And that resistance, of course, will be met by resistance from conservatives. And that's what we call a reckoning. And I think there will be some results from the reckoning that will be forced to actually address these issues for the first time and may result in ongoing civil unrest until uh, this issue is resolved or we can come together like American citizens using our political structures in order to change the law and address the culture. Or we'll see summers like we saw last summer repeated over the next few years. The civil rights movement wasn't just one year in the 60s. It was a protracted movement, not just a moment. I think that's what we're entering into now. But a movement is made up of moments. And for activists, one defining moment will be the ultimate fate in the Senate of legislation that got its start nearly a year ago. I think the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act is a good starting point. John Prido is our United States editor. There's a lot in it, restriction of the use of force by police departments, creating a national database of officer misconduct. One of the concerns is that if you're a police officer in one city, you might be dismissed for misconduct and then get a job in a different city and that police department might not necessarily know. And limiting a legal doctrine called qualified immunity, which often protects police officers in cases where they've killed somebody in the line of their work. It's important to note, Jason, that this bill largely applies to federal law enforcement officers. And America, of course, is a decentralized country where there are very many police departments that are not under the control of the federal government. So to some extent, this is an act that sets an example to the rest of the country, rather than if it passes an act that flicks the switch that transforms policing in every jurisdiction in America overnight. And what about the likelihood that the bill will actually become law? 
Well, there, I think things get murkier. This is not the most partisan issue in America. That said, Jason, getting to 60 votes for anything, like a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, is really hard. And there are certainly certain bits in this bill that Republican senators won't like. There's a broad conservative argument that the federal government shouldn't be stepping on the toes of police departments in states and in cities. You know, that's the old sort of federalism argument. And then I think there's more concern as well about stripping away some of the legal shields that protect police officers from prosecution. So it's not clear that it'll get past, but I wouldn't say it's quite as cut and dried as many issues are in America where you can say, oh, well, this definitely won't get to 60. I think it'll be close. And as for the police forces themselves, what appetite do you think there is for change among them, wherever they are? I think that varies a lot from force to force. I mean, there are examples of a lot of police forces actually that have managed to turn themselves around. Newark is one that we've written about a fair bit in The Economist. But often the police forces that are the most recalcitrant and where you'd most want change are most resistant to change. And also that they really don't like the notion of the federal government coming in and cleaning house and sorting themselves out. There are some levers that the federal government gets to pull, but it's more complicated than passing a bill in Washington, which is hard enough, and getting it signed by the president. One of the most radical calls during all of this was one we kept hearing to defund the police. What's happened to that push? I think there's less talk of defunding the police from activists now. I think there's a broad recognition that that was a terrible slogan for a political movement, not least because African-American neighbourhoods in northern cities in America suffer from crime most, and so the appetite for defunding the police there is small, but also because it never really meant what the slogan said it did. If you asked people what they meant by defunding the police, they typically said, oh, we'd like to divert some of the police budget towards services like mental health provision. So yes, there's less of that. I think the Democratic Party has internalised the lesson that talking about defunding the police is a really bad way to win elections. And also, increasing crime makes what was already a very hard sell even harder. And what about the the feeling on the ground in Minneapolis and beyond? Is there a sense uh, that among the people that the experience of racism has, has changed a year on? I'm not sure about the experience of racism, Jason, but what I would say is that when I was last in Minneapolis doing some reporting, that people were just talking about race in America, race in policing, racial disparities in health, income, education, everything else, a lot that... George Floyd's murder started a national conversation and introspection about those long-standing disparities and why it's quite so hard to close them. And I think a real impatience to do something. I don't think these things change overnight, but I do think it's striking, as you know, Lee Merritt said, the degree to which, partly because of the pandemic and also because of the fact that Donald Trump was president, it seemed like the focus of the entire nation for a while was on this question. And to your mind, has the case of George Floyd made a real change here, that it's a a new American discussion about this? I mean, we've seen flare-ups in the wake of injustice before, and this is clearly a, a difference of degree, but is it a difference in kind? I'm always a bit nervous about pinpointing a single event and saying this is the moment when everything changed, particularly 
when you're talking about something as long-running a problem as racial injustice in America and problems of racism and, and American institutions. That said, I mean, I think there were some really significant changes after George Floyd was murdered. I mean, the first one would be that the biggest civil rights protests in American history ensued, and they were notably multiracial, and also they were notably spread across the nation. So that was pretty striking. And one other point, which again, is just one data point, but nevertheless is significant, that Derek Chauvin, the officer responsible for George Floyd's death, was convicted of murder. That's really unusual. So I think often people who look at race in America just see the commonalities and see injustices stretching back forever and bemoan the fact that nothing ever seems to change. But I think in this case, something did actually change. Thanks very much for joining us, John. Thanks, Jason. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. For those involved in racial justice, positive change can feel hard won and often easily lost. Of course things get better, but transformation is not a forward ever progressive arc in history. Just go to Reconstruction to answer that question, right? We we had more representatives in the Senate in the aftermath of the Civil War than we had when Barack Obama was elected to the Senate. On this week's episode of Checks and Balance, our sister show on American politics, John Brito spoke to Kimberly Crenshaw of the think tank, the African American Policy Forum. How do we hold on to the progress that we've made and not turn that into a wide system of denial to say that these problems aren't going to keep coming back in different ways. It is like Friday the 13th. Whatever that monster is called, I don't remember if it was Jason or Michael or whoever, they always are buried in a shallow grave. It takes hard work. It takes the willingness not to dissemble in the face of the truth about our history. And it takes being aware of the moments when we might be sliding back resisting censorship of these ideas, resisting the idea that we're too weak to confront our past, and knowing that if we cannot name the the problems we're trying to solve, we're not going to inherit that country that we think we have a right to be. John also spoke to our U.S. digital editor, John Fasman, about the public policies that would be needed to bring about lasting change. In the neighborhood where I stay in Washington, D.C., Northwest D.C. is full of, you know, 
good liberals who no doubt have, you know, an NPR tote bag for every day of the week and saw Nomadland and IMAX and are happy to stick a Black Lives Matter poster in their in their front yard, but who vociferously oppose the sort of zoning reform that D.C. needs to make it a more affordable city for the people who work there, especially the working class men and women who keep the city functioning. The problem that I think public policy can get to work on here are these long-standing disparities in employment, in education, in income, and in wealth. There's this paradox in America, which is that African Americans, on, on many of those measures, actually made a lot of progress in the first half of the 20th century and have made almost no progress relative to whites in the decades since the passage of the Civil Rights Act. You, you'd kind of think it would be the opposite, right? These are very, very stubborn racial gaps. To hear the full interview with Kimberly Crenshaw and more policy analysis from our colleagues, listen to Checks and Balance wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. See you back here tomorrow. peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.